Hey, it's Scott Norton at Founders and Friends Podcast by Cruise Consulting, and a quick shout out to our sponsor, Brex. They are the credit card for startups, easy to use, virtual credit cards, physical credit cards, integrate with QuickBooks easily, no personal guarantee by the founder. That is huge. Check out Brex, B-R-E-X.com, and put in Cruise when you go through the sign-up flow, and you should get a discount. Thanks. Now on to a great podcast, Mark McLeod. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting, and my very special guest today is Mark McLeod of what, SurePath Capital? SurePath sure, sure Capital Partners. We go way back to like FreshBooks and all these other things, but SurePath, and SurePath is on fire, so thank you for carving <laughs> some time out of your busy schedule. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks, yeah, no, Mark's amazing, and you started your company four years ago? It'll be five years in May. And you were just off the record telling us some of the deals you've closed, and it's <laughs> insane. I follow you on Twitter. I know exactly what's going on. Thank you. But uh, how's it feel? How's it feel to be someone who like <laughs> built something amazing and is right in the middle of the hurricane? Uh, yeah, it's you know it's funny. It's it's mostly obviously awesome, but um, for a SaaS guy, you know, being in the deal business is the literal opposite <laughs> of SaaS, right? So we did. 53% of our revenue in 2018 in December. Wow. We closed two deals on the same day in December, three overall. Um, that break kind of between Christmas and New Year's, I was literally comatose. Oh my God, know, Just because yeah. I couldn't think. Yeah. And so you just, you have to have a, a strong stomach and a strong balance sheet. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say though, like, so I'm coming up May 31 this year, will be two decades in the startup world. And I'm always at the right hand of CEOs, either as their CFO or as their investor or now as their advisor. Yeah. And um, they would always talk to me about like how they felt paranoid and could never sort of just like never appreciate yeah. where they were. And yeah. now I completely get that, yeah. right? Because yeah, yeah. it's but, like, if you think about our business, so it's obviously very lucrative, yeah. but we don't have recurring relationships. Yeah. And in fact, it's strategic to close a deal sooner rather than later because you never know what's going to happen. It's going to like Trump nuke North Korea. It's like yeah. Brexit. Like, you know, you close a deal as soon as you possibly can and therefore you, and then your revenue's done. You, you know? sell your best clients too. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. kind, of, it's kind of our problem too is our best clients get huge and then right. they bring it all in the house. We've never, we still haven't figured that out yet, but like. Yeah, you need a recruiting division. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Deal but that, it. so you did 50% of your revenue in the last month. I mean, that kind of makes sense because like M&A yeah. is a year end thing, but like. Yeah. Do, did you like age five years? Like, I think I did. Yeah. No, it was honestly. Now, like. If you think about it, like again, so these there's a lead up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. you know, there's different phases. You know, there's the upfront prep phase, there's the marketing phase in the middle, then there's the legal closing in the end. I am personally involved, sort of more upfront and making sure we have the right strategy and we're telling it to the right audience, and then in the heavy, like the negotiating the, the deal weeks, and yeah. the closing. Yeah. The middle is more the team. Yeah. Uh, so we each, I guess, felt different pressure points. Um, but no question, was super happy to like you know have those done and not work. But weren't you feeling like because I because I remember this when I did M and A at Hamburg Quest, like we had this guy David Golden and Paul Cleveland, and they were the Obi Wan Kenobi's of our you know, and that's how you are now, <laughs> and like you have to be on the phone for those like critical two days where right. like. Maybe there's two or three bidders and you're going back and forth and you're talking to your client every hour. That's really intense. Like that's probably what December was like for you, right? Because that's right up till the... Yeah, yeah, that and uh, yeah, absolutely. And then 
a lot of the heavy lifting is particularly like some of our clients that are maybe more bootstrapped and haven't, you know, don't have a board yeah. and all these things, maybe don't have a great back office, um, which is something where we have you. brought you guys yeah, in. Thank you for that, um, by the way. But if they don't have that, then sometimes we end up filling in the blanks there on disclosure schedules and all this stuff that oh, the company stuff, would do. Yeah. So there's some serious heavy lifting yeah. in the final mile. And just not, no, no judgment on your clients or just all the clients that come to us who are a little disorganized or haven't been through it before. Yeah. You, they don't know what they don't know and they don't, a lot of stuff they're, they're being asked that question for the first time because they've never been asked that. So then that's you right. have to like, they may give you an answer that's actually not true and you have to, not, not that they're lying, they just don't know the answer. They just don't know, yeah. They mean, so they, they're yeah. well-intentioned, I assume, yeah. you know, almost, almost universally. Yeah, especially in an M&A thing, like they want to do it right and you've also explained like how disclosures are binding and all right. that kind of stuff. And yeah, but it's, you know, it's tricky, right? Like if you think about the decision to buy a company, you can't unwind it. It's not like if you buy a stock, like, oh, you know what, I made a mistake, I'm yeah. just gonna sell it, like you're done. And so what you're really selling is trust and therefore actually having super solid data, having every I dotted, every T crossed helps you sell trust. Yeah. It's actually strategic to have the most kick-ass back office yeah. you can. And um, the person who's buying you probably is putting their career on the line or maybe, maybe like they get one other, one mulligan and then if they make another bad buy, they're fired. That is exactly but like these right. are the people, the companies that you're selling startups to are like really, really big, big companies that can't mess us up. Like it's yeah, that's exactly deal. right, and that you know that might be a theme worth drilling into, yeah. right? Which is just um, you know from an acquirer standpoint, yeah. it is as difficult as fraught with risk as political in some cases to buy you know a quote unquote small thing as it is to buy a quote unquote large thing, yeah. and therefore all else being equal, I just assume buy the yeah. large thing, yeah. right? And so there's a floor from a revenue standpoint, I would say, below which you are very unlikely to find a buyer. Yeah. Right? Because um, it's got to move the needle for that person. And usually yeah. that person's running like a big division or something like that, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I know. That's Also, you said something, you're like, we don't have recurring relationships, but you actually do have recurring relationships with the buyers. Like, you are Mark McLeod, <clears throat> you are SurePath. They have to always... They need to take your phone call at all times. And so you can't sell them a lemon because you need them to be there for the next company. Yeah, that's that's for sure. So we're again, we're super specialized, right? Yeah. So we our goal is to be the leading boutique investment bank in SMB software yep. globally. Yep. Um, we're still in the early innings of that. But we already have you know two mandates in Europe that we're live with now. Uh, we're not in Asia yet. I understand there's lots going on in Asia, yeah. so you know, all in due course. But um, but we want to own that market yeah. and be you know the one call that CEOs in that market make when they want to do something. And so you're absolutely right. Our goal is certainly like every buyer is going to take our call. Yeah. Obviously. Actually, we do act, act for buyers now. We have a buy side practice. Oh. Uh, that's kind of a new development in the firm uh, since last year. But most of our work is sell side. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately why we do obviously represent the sell side client, um, it is a balancing act. Like, you know, something we will never do is outright lie to a buyer and tell them, there's competitive bids at X if dollars when, yeah. there, when there aren't, yeah. right? Because to the extent that that gets found out, like first of all, that deal's dead, they're not buying our client. 
and then our credibility with them is shot, yeah. right? So there's that happens, by the way. That happened. Our, we have clients happens. asking us all the time at H and Q to do that. And yep. we, we didn't do it either. And it's like maybe maybe some of our competitors did. I don't know, but like I've been asked two more than once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it can. is a recurring thing. And like you're gonna it, when you go to like the Shopify conference and you see all the other big uh, ecosystem players there, you you need to be able to like they want to shake you. You want to have a good relationship with those people. You can't That's just we be, can serve like. If we are not trusted by the buy side, we cannot serve ourselves yeah, like exactly. this, right? Yeah. So you have to, you know, walk a fine line. What is the buy side service you're providing now? Is it research or is it? No, no, it's actually, um, you know, something again. So from the very early days, like two quarters into SurePath, I made the decision to focus on SMB mm-hmm. and maybe say why, cause you, yeah, yeah, sure. So first of all, if you think of SMB, that's a very wide ranging. It's, you know, it's not a one thing. It's mm-hmm. everything from the freelancers working out of their basement that FreshBooks serves all the way up to multi-hundred person, sophisticated mid-market enterprise. Yep. So it's basically, it's B2B and it's not consumer and it's not like the big steak dinner Oracle enterprise yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. So all of our companies tend, they're in that middle of B2B and as a result probably have you know, high velocity marketing funnels, lots of small, you know, or mid-sized customers, but they tend to be data-driven versus mm-hmm. if you're Fortune 500, well, guess what? You have 500 prospects you yeah. can go after. Yeah. You know in your mind, you know, how your business works. And whereas, super expensive salespeople is how you go after that. And, yeah. And a lot of sponsorships or That's right. you know, things like that. Um, so our companies are more data-driven yeah. and that kind of lends itself well to our expertise. Yeah. And I've personally been in the SM, SMB space uh, you know, with Shopify and FreshBooks, et cetera, kind of since 2009. Yeah. And um, so that's, that's our sweet spot that and, we're going to have. And when you say, so first of all, those are two amazing companies. So you're always very modest, but you've worked with two awesome companies. We were just talking about how I actually bought Shopify because of you, because my friend, <laughs> Sports Basement, deployed it. And it's been, the, it'll hopefully pay for my, my daughter's college someday. It's yeah. an amazing company. FreshBooks is doing great. Uh, but also you said about the data stuff. Maybe maybe connect that like why it makes it easier to run an like raise money for an SMB company that has a lot of data or do an M and A deal with a company that has a lot of data because you have something to show the buyers right. Yeah, again, going back to this concept of selling trust, right? Yeah. So I've operated these kinds of companies at yeah. scale. When I was a VC, I was investing almost exclusively in SMB software, and if your business is one that has lots of small customers and you've been doing it for a while, then what you're gonna have over time is all this cohort data, right? Where you can slice and dice your business every possible way by you know source of customer, by vertical, yeah. size of customer, geography, whatever attribute. And we like to do that. Like, when we get involved with a client, we like to rip it apart, kind of put it back together. Any SaaS business is gonna have some magic. So yeah. some stuff that's working super well uh, and it's going to have warts. Yep. And so we try and find the magic so we can exploit it in two fronts. One, let's, hey, let's, if, you don't know, if you're not aware of this magic already, yeah. let's figure it out and do more of that. Invest right? more of that, yeah. Uh, and second, let's make sure that's part of the story. Yep. On the flip side, if there are warts, which there will be, yeah. can we uh, make them go away in some fashion yep. or if not how do we have mitigating yeah. stories right and or maybe so, the buyer can mitigate those warts themselves you know right. because they they're complementary in some way right and yeah. so uh, you know the quintessential example of a wart in the context of SMB is churn yeah. right so everyone knows that you know you sell to small business they churn at a high rate the problem with any metric when you are 
putting it across tons and tons of customers is there's no such thing as an average customer, yeah, right? Yeah. And so while you may have a high headline churn number, um, so like a benchmark if on a logo basis, if you're like north of 3% a month, it's considered high. Mm -hmm. And if you're kind of north of one and a half on revenue, you know, it's, uh, you're, making a feel, you're making me feel good. We're below yeah. that. That's awesome. Good. Um, pure SaaS, but we're a recurring <laughs> business. So yeah. right. Um, then, but you know, when you dig underneath the hood and slice and dice by your different segments, you may have this overall number that is north of three on a logo basis, but have, you know, meaningful pockets of your business that are less. And yeah. So it is when you go past the in the averages to find the true insights, yeah. that's when, you know, you can do good work. That makes total sense. Like for, we actually had like three or four companies go out of business last month. So on our churn, it looks like we lost three or four customers. Right. But really, we kind of knew that was happening. That's also just part of our business. Like we know that going in, there's yep. nothing you can really do to manage that. And so, nope. for your some of your SaaS clients, it may be that they're they're super they're super strong in one region of the United States, but aren't investing correctly in another region, or maybe a customer acquisition channel. Maybe they're awesome on Google and Facebook, but aren't doing enough content marketing or something like that. And you find right. the magic for them, and uh, and then you have something to show the buyers. You're like, oh my gosh, look at this. 5x multiple on customer acquisition spend. If yeah. they just had more capital or you or attached to you guys, this could be a humongous business, and that's that's where you come in, right? Yeah, and that's why again, so all, all comes back to trust at the end of the yeah. day, right? If we have ripped this business apart and put it back together in the form of an authoritative data room, we are de-risking this thing for whether it's a buyer or an investor. Like we have done the analysis, really and cool. they just need to audit the analysis and then write a big check. I've never actually heard an investment banker, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> actually say that. That's not how they normally think. They normally think in terms of like how many players they can get in a bidding uh, situation yeah. or how many, you know, how many have they shown the, <clears throat> the private placement or the M&A document to and how many are in the next step and like a, it's more of a funnel analysis. Yeah, it is. Not like a uh, strategic or financial analysis. Yeah, like, I would almost say, say like I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that before. So all right, so I'm gonna go on my soapbox. This is a compliment here. But Thank yeah. you. No, I appreciate that. So I'll, let me say this: I don't think investment banking is an easy business, no, but it is not hard to be better than most bankers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think most bankers who and they're by the way they're smart, overachieving people as yeah. individuals, but it's just. I guess it's just the history, right, and of how they do things. But I don't. I am unencumbered from ever having been a that's banker. A, that's an awesome point, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm kind of coming at this from what makes sense. You know, what I would want to see as an operator or as a, as, an, as a VC. Yeah. And you know, if you think and about a buyer, you've been yeah, at these big big S and B companies. You know. That's right. And uh, yeah, Rancorp, David Fresh Books. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally have that view. Yeah. We see uh, processes, especially now doing uh, buy side work from, you know, more traditional banks. You know, first of all, they have these confidential info memorandums that are like war and peace, like as if there's going to be a valuation per page. <laughs> I used page. to have to write those. Yeah. 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 And it was just like, oh, if we give them 300 pages, it'll be worth more or something. Yeah. But yeah. So that's a thing. And then it's just like this brute force auction. Yeah. That's what right? I'm talking about. And yeah. I think auctions suck for every side. I think as a buyer, you feel like, okay, I'm just in this impersonal thing with a hundred other people. Yeah. 
you know, as an investor, you know, many of them actually just refuse to even participate. That's the thing, yeah, because people um, don't want to be in auction because it drives the, it's like the yeah. winner's curse, right? So then you end up overpaying for something. Right. The only way you can win is if you overpay. And, and even for our clients, right? Like, if you have a business that's valuable enough that you're considering selling it, well, you first you have to continue running your business while you go through this process. Yeah. And if you're talking to like, every buyer with a pulse, yeah. then you know, you're, you're not, you know, you're gonna take your eye off the ball or something. And I, I fundamentally think, and it's a balancing act, like you can't have these one-off discussions. You do have to talk to multiple parties. There does need to be process tension. Yeah. But we think that the magic happens when two sides have the opportunity to fall in love with each other, yeah. right? And get, get past the Excel spreadsheets and see the, the values alignment, the vision alignment, the, see the strategic impact. Yeah. And so again, that goes back to why we are specialized, right? Because if we're dealing with a finite set of buyers, I, then hopefully that. over time, we not only know what they're thinking, but we can influence what yeah. they're thinking. Yeah. And you know, here's what we're seeing in the market. It doesn't have to be a sure path client. We just know what's going on. And like, we're just, you know, trying to be a value added thought partner. Yeah. And we it's regularly- It's a big enough market too, where it's huge. Like you guys are on fire and you could probably, your firm could grow 10X and you'd still not be serving all S and like- For sure. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's just so, so many companies yeah. Yeah. serving. I mean, we just, in our state of SMB thing, I know you'll, you'll talk yeah. about that. Like we, yeah, there was like 600 something deals in that space in North America last year, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we served nine of those 600 deals. So we're nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> But, and then just kind of, kind of connecting it, like that magic, because I think um, people, maybe on the outside, they look at an M&A thing as like the day the deal is announced or the day the documents are signed or the money's wired, that's the deal's done. But really, everyone involved has to, con has to work together well after to achieve whatever the purpose was. The, that's right. the founder doesn't want their company just to get mothballed. That's actually like the worst situation for the founder. Correct. And the <clears> buyer <throat> needs it to perform and needs it to do well and probably needs it to 5X or 10X, whatever the multiple is, to be worth whatever they paid for it. So that you're kind of setting them up for like a good marriage instead of like the shotgun wedding. That yeah, I often say, you know, there's two sides to a deal. There's terms and they matter a lot. Yeah. But then there's who you're in bed with, yeah. right? And you know, do you see the world the same way? You know, yeah. As a founder and team that have built a product, will it continue to live on? Yeah. Uh, do you have a good home? You know. That's super because a lot of people care about their legacy. That's kind of like that, yeah. and they put. I don't think companies get uh, bought as early as they did maybe when I was doing investment banking back in the day. Maybe some. There's some small ones, but like. Most companies probably are getting bought like after eight to ten years, right? Yep. Of the founder building it, that's like yep. a core part of their life. Mm -hmm. so don't don't want exactly to sell right. like that. Um, we sold a company last year, where um, you know, kind of multiple bidders, and uh, you know, we actually ultimately didn't go with the highest bidder. Wow. Uh, and I thought the the board was really classy about this. This was a, a classic situation where the company had raised a lot of capital and had raised too much relative to the revenue it had achieved. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it was real, there was real revenue, there was real enterprise value, but they had gotten you know, ahead of their skis or yeah. whatever you know, yeah. in terms of how much capital they'd raised. Yeah. So it was not a win situation for the VCs. Yeah. But there was you know, one of the, the buyers at the table was one that the team was particularly excited to join. And 
you know, to the credit of the VCs, they left value on the table That's awesome. and allowed management to go to wow. their preferred home. So that was, you don't that was that really very cool. often. No. Was that, was it, is there, just to pry into that a little bit, is there self-interest because the founders will come out in a couple of years and work with those same VCs again? Or is Maybe. it just doing the right thing? Is it I like think it was simple? doing the right thing. You know, the, the, the founding CEO was quite articulate about, you know, why it made sense to go there. And yeah. he felt like they could have the biggest impact there. Uh, That's awesome. So it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, changing gears a little bit. Let's talk about one of the deals you just did. The, probably yeah. the, those two that almost killed you on the same day. <laughs> yeah, that was right. Uh, tax jar. We tax love jar. we love tax jar here. Yes. We refer tax jar. Uh, may, do you want to set it up, or do you want me to tell people why tax jar is important? No, you go for it, Nana. So the Supreme Court recently, or like last summer, no. you can yeah. find the blog post on Cruise Consulting's blog. Said that like basically companies that don't even have nexus in the state are going to be subject to sales tax pretty soon. Right. You used to always have that nexus, which is basically employees or assets in a state and that's then there's some threshold and so all of a sudden like literally overnight tax jar and avalara became probably two of the most important SaaS companies out there yeah because they every kind of SaaS or e-commerce company that's selling nationwide or in just more than one state which is pretty much all of them has this kind of tax obligation hanging over their heads the tax obligations kind of isn't still isn't really defined that well, and mm-hmm. we're all we're starting to do a lot of sales and use tax studies, uh, but everyone needs to get this in place so that they can do the calculations so they know what to submit, and there'll be some threshold. It's going to be fifty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is in a given state before you start triggering sales tax. But basically, everyone needs to start thinking about this. So, a, I was like, I didn't know you're representing the tax jar until I saw it on Twitter, but like. Those two companies really like the old Wayne Gretzky, you're Canadian, skated <laughs> to where the puck was going. Yeah, that's right. Not where it is. So I was amazed by that. But now they're in a position where there's only like really two viable pieces of software to do this. Yeah. And we're like hand over fist, you know, in, in, handing these clients them. I told you off mic, I was buying like Avalara stock whenever I could, only because I couldn't really buy TaxJar stock as right. private. But like, how did you get involved with TaxJar? Did you see this opportunity? Like, tell, give us the, the play-by-play sure. play real fast. I know there's probably some stuff you can't share, but, like, yeah. um, share the juicy stuff. Yeah, so it's an interesting <laughs> case study, right? You know, I often tell the team, like, we have a very short sales cycle. Like, you know, when someone has a decision they need to do something, they're going to figure out who their advisor is pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and we are very privileged in that most of our leads are inbound. Yeah. So it's sort of not even a classic sales cycle per se. Uh, but we often build relationships. We have a long relationship cycle yeah. that done right paves the way to a short sales and cycle. And they call you right when they need you. That's it. Yeah. And again, I, I get a mantra that I share internally all the time. Is like, I want SurePass to be the one call that the CEO makes when the time is right. And, uh, and that is what happened here. But, you know, I first reached out to uh, Mark, the CEO of TaxJar, two years ago. And uh, just started to get to know him, uh, you know, met him once. Uh, Techstar is a fascinating company, actually. So completely crushing it. No physical office. The team's distributed. Oh, nice. I reached out. I Inspiration thought, for us. That's awesome. Yeah. I, um, I thought he was in San Diego. I was at an event in San Diego. I had a call with him from the airport. Turns out he had moved to Boston. So next time I was in Boston, we met. Uh, at a Whole Foods cafeteria. <laughs> uh, the glamorous life. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. And... Um, but, you know, just kept in touch periodically. And then, yeah, kind of around the time of this ruling, he just 
he called up and just like, dude, like our phone's blowing up, like we need to figure this out. Yeah. And so, you know, I would argue that that ruling disproportionately affected smaller businesses rather than larger businesses because larger businesses already probably had already had yeah. Nexus and the infrastructure yeah. already. Yeah. And while both Avalara and Textjar cater to both segments, I would say Avalara has more kind of larger clients. Yeah. And whereas Taxjar's historical strength was with smaller. Yeah. And so uh, without talking out of school too much, what I would say is there was a lot of strategic interest in Taxjar, yeah. which we turned into offers. Yeah. But we also felt like they were in the early innings of their business. And um, I would agree with that, by the way. Yeah. Because like most of the companies, just to give you a data point, most of the companies that we talk to about this don't even know what sales and use tax are, you mm -hmm. know? And like, they're like, what, huh? You know? And so we're the, we almost are like the bearer of bad news a little bit and they don't always like it, but then we can follow up with, we have a great software solution with tax jar. You can, you yeah. can try them out. Da, 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 da. And that, that mitigates it a little bit, but like people don't come, startups don't know about this stuff yet. Yeah, that's right. It's still not penetrated. Right. So they've got a huge market opportunity ahead of them. Yeah. So they still, they have a huge market opportunity in their core SMB, yep. but then they, this is actually, they've gone through a similar evolution to uh, Shopify, right? So Shopify for years, kind of like long tail yeah. of merchants, and then a few years back launched Shopify Plus. Yep. And Taxjar has done the same thing, and so they have a you know pretty new product called Taxjar Plus, uh, directly competitive with Avalara, and we felt like just between, you know, to your point, right? Like across any segment, this this category is only going to grow. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make sense to sell today, so you know instead. Uh, we helped them find a private equity sponsor in Insight Partners yeah. uh, who could not only fund them, but could bring, and I contrast, you know, VC to private equity, and we could talk yeah, about that. Yeah, you called them private equity. I always think of them as a late stage VC, but yeah, I guess those lines have blurred a little they bit. Have, they have blurred, and yeah. we, we can definitely talk about that. Yeah. But, you know, they look to have meaningful stakes in companies yeah. so that then they can be, you know, involved and Super have the incentive yeah. to be involved. Now, yeah. they are not benign. Right, yeah. you know, they wrote a sixty million dollar check out of a six and a half billion dollar fund. Yeah, if you have a six and a half billion dollar fund, you're trying to turn it into eighteen billion yeah. to achieve your IRR yeah. target. Yeah. That is a non-trivial challenge. Yeah, and therefore you're not just going to invest and show up at a board meeting once a quarter and like, hey guys, how's it going? You know, are we doing all right or not? Even just a sheer <laughs> sixty million is a huge check. Like someone's butts on the line for that. You Better know, you can't it. just lose sixty million dollars. That's right. And so, you know, and I, I have, we had conversations with our client about that, but, you know, there was specific value add beyond the capital they were looking for that we felt Insight could provide. Well, Insight does a lot of SaaS deals and they could probably, they probably could pay for themselves, like in the dilution in a way, just by introducing them to their portfolio. You yeah, know what I mean? It's like kind of that simple sometimes. That's true. You know? Yeah. Um, so that, that's an amazing cup. So, so you basically took them all the way through and... Yeah, kind of dual track them yeah. in a pretty short order. Yeah. Delivered strategic offers, delivered you know, financial offers. Yeah. We picked a path and, and closed. Well, then, good for you. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, another topic we wanted to cover, which is... Because um, you, you kind of segued in there with private equity. And yeah. private equity to me was always like... KKR and um, you know I don't know all those old super sure, old school Thomas, Bravo, LBO groups yeah. and things like that and then probably 10 years ago it started changing and that yeah. smart private equity people figured out that you could you could actually invest in SaaS companies because they had a reoccurring business model predictable and it turned out they were kind of capital intensive in the early days 
and then became massively cash flow positive in the later days. Right. To kind of fit the profile. Yep. So you are starting to see companies that have like done seed or one round of VC and then go don't do any late stage VC and go right to private equity. Like what's, yeah, we're seeing that a lot. Yeah. What's what's so, happening there? So first of all, just uh, just to pile on to your observation about yeah. private equity, right? So the origin of private equity was in this LBO yeah. thing. You would buy Phil cash Morris, flow. You know. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. Barbarian at the gates, right? Um, you would buy a cash flow generating business, lever the shit out of it, yeah. put as much debt as you could on, yeah. try and drive for operational efficiencies and just anyway, run it for cash flow, yeah. which you cannot do in SaaS or should not do, yeah. right? Like, you know, and so what happened a few years ago is PE investors got religion around unit economics being more important than bottom line profitability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you got folks like Vista Equity Partners yeah. as an example who've really gone to town on that. And so now in aggregate, you know, the tech focus, like the private equity funds are managing 1.2 trillion of capital, not assets under management, like currently active funds oh, that really? they will Holy deploy cow. in the next 24 Gosh. to 36 months. Uh, so they are a huge force in the market. Wow. And so, you know, I don't have a crystal ball or I'd be dialing into this from, I don't know, British Virgin Islands or something yeah, today, yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah, here yeah. hustling. I didn't either. Yeah. But, uh, so I don't have a crystal ball, so take this for what it's worth. But we're obviously way overdue for a recession at yeah. some point. It's, I don't think it's going to be like 2008 where you know, institutional checks dried up and therefore I think PE will continue to be a force in the market yeah. whether we have a downturn or yeah. not. Right? And their stomach is pretty strong so they'll – if there's – there's, I think another way to say that is there might be – I wouldn't say a put but there's like – if things go down 20 or 30 percent, they're going to be opportunistic and buy yeah. you know, those companies. Like Absolutely. HubSpot's already gone public again after it, right? After getting bought. Didn't, did they didn't go. They they just they had venture like General Catalyst yeah. and Scale Venture Partners, and yeah. they just went public. Okay, I thought they for some reason I thought they got bought. No. I know Thomas Bravo has bought a couple SaaS companies. Yeah, they actually bought one of my light, old Lighthouse deals, Centrify recently, oh, right. which yeah. is awesome. It was awesome for everybody. That was yeah. that was great. And Marketo. Yeah, Marketo is the one I was thinking. I'm yeah. sorry, not not and it was bought by Vista, and then Adobe just bought it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly. And they got and the private equity guys made like three X, right, or something. Yeah, three X from like a billion in a short period of time. But yeah, I, that's what I was. That wasn't it. Wasn't HubSpot as Marketo. Yeah. Do those guys start dipping down, or how do they? Because because they've been kind of buying companies that maybe went public or super late yeah. stage. Are they getting they are more confident? Down. They are. Like I would say. Um, so again, you have the giant funds, the vistas of the world. Yeah. Like they can't slum it too much, yeah. right? But you've got lots of fund managers who you've never heard of, yeah. who are managing you know, 200, $300 million funds that play in this thing called lower middle market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of 10 million ARR or slightly And those used to be businesses. small family businesses they would go after. Yeah. Like in my 10, 15 years ago before yeah. I started, yeah. Yeah. But now they have huge appetite for for these kind of, you know, quote unquote small SaaS businesses yeah. that they can, you know, either apply operational excellence to or acquire companies to yeah. add on to. Like they're looking to do things with yeah. them. Uh, but there's lots of them. Wow. And and so yeah, coming back to this whole bootstrapped and kind of or semi bootstrapped yeah. and kind of skipping VC. Yeah. You know, if you read TechCrunch all the time, you think your only path to funding a business is venture. Yeah. And, you know, venture gets, a, I think, a disproportionate amount of the press, but is actually inappropriate for most businesses. Yeah. 
Um, and I would agree with that. We've seen some of our competitors take venture, and it's, it's very difficult. And we're like a more of a services business, but it's right. like it really messes you up if you, yeah. if you're not the right profile. That's right. And and again, if you think about the SMB market that we play in, uh, one of its attributes, and we talked about this last time I was here, is the fact that it's evergreen. Yeah. You know, these markets have been around forever; they're going to be yeah. around forever. Yeah. And the point of that is that you don't have to burn your way to greatness yeah. and try and get it all done in five years, yeah, yeah. right? You know, like uh, FreshBooks was 10 years old when it raised its first institutional funding round. It had over 100 employees. Yeah. You know, it was a real business. Yeah. Shopify was six years old when we did the Series A. You know, they, you can take your time. Yep. And so what you see, probably a full half of our clients at SurePath are companies that have maybe in the case of Taxjar raised a seed round and then been profitable for the last three years or just like never raised a penny and just we, we, you refer to client over like that to us that we work with that yeah. I don't want to Growing. say their name but they're like pro actually I told you this off mic I had to call them and be like hey guys guess what you have to pay taxes this year and they're like what <laughs> I'm like yeah it's crazy you're like making money like, yeah. you know and it happens it, like we see it a lot it's that's crazy. right um, any any advice like so what about because um, and we talked about this in the M&A part of this but like VCs do provide value add not always but like mm -hmm. a lot of times they do where should those folks and maybe this is maybe the question is they should be calling you or the answer is they should be calling you but where do they go for advice to help them make chart the right path you know is that where you come in and they should be reaching out to you or how do you think about that yeah I don't know it depends I think like, first of all, with VCs, so I love VCs. I used to be one. I work with them a lot. But, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not a VC anymore is there's actually an inherent conflict between a VC's objectives and a founder's objectives, yeah, right? Sure. You know, venture is so dependent on outliers and yeah. finding the next home run yeah. that you are actually out of alignment with most of the founders that you back. Yeah. And so I actually think turning to your VC for advice is problematic because of that basis, yeah. because they are incented for you to grow as fast as humanly possible. And if you die trying, well, screw it. Yeah. Right? I just had like, one of my, on that note, it's not, it's not a sure path client, but a SaaS company, serial founder sold for $60 million, six zero, but he'd only taken one round and it was, he was totally out of alignment with his VCs. Right. Kudos to his VCs, they actually let, because a lot of times they can block it. Mm -hmm. They actually let him do it. But it was like a crazy life-changing amount of money for him and his co-founder. Yeah. Um, but his VCs weren't very happy. Like they, That's right. It, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a win, even That's though exactly they got right. probably 3x. Which is money. perverse. Right? Yeah, it was weird. It, yeah. Totally but he was, he's a second-time founder, and he's been through it, so he kind of knew that this was the right time to sell the business and mm -hmm. could stand up to them if they pushed. I don't know if they did push him that hard, but... By yeah, the way, most of the time, the right time to sell the business is earlier than VCs yeah. would want. Yeah. The vast majority of the yeah. time, right? That is particularly true. I think that's true across the board. But you know, as we crunched like the data on SMB exits, most of them are sub fifty million. Yeah. Right. So, and you know, I think in this environment where there's so much capital and things are so frothy. You can keep raising bigger and bigger rounds and feel really great about yourself and totally screw yourself on and the other. And then the music stops. It's kind of like that one company you're talking about that had yeah. overcapitalized. Yep. And then and they're lucky they got someone to buy them. There's a lot of a lot of acquirers don't want to buy something that's been overcapitalized for two reasons. One, they have bad habits and it's about yep. like, the burn's too high. And B, it's like a really it's a fight with the 
investors to sell because they're not getting what they want anyways. So yeah. it's just not a good outcome. Yeah, and also I would say like buyers and VCs have a funny relationship with each other. So many VCs, you know, some of the best ones will have good relationships with yeah. the buyers. But I think as a rule, a buyer is not looking to make a VC rich. A buyer only cares about the team that they're <laughs> totally. going to inherit, right? Totally. And it's like the cost of doing business is dealing with the VC. That's right. And so well, you I, hear that now. I mean, I'm sure you see this a lot where people are trying, especially in the smaller exits, they're trying to um, realign the the uh, distribution of uh, proceeds to yep. like the manager. Yeah, they'll team. redo the waterfalls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. How, do you see that? How often do you see that? Like 10% of the time, 20% of the time? Yeah, I mean, you know, across the board on these uh, kind of overcapitalized ones, yeah. there'll either be a re complete redoing or, you know, if the board has done kind of just taken the pain already and come up with a carve out, maybe yeah. they'll be okay with that. I've never seen a board do a carve out without having like a gun to their head. Do you, do you see that like coming in? Or? We've, we've seen it twice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've seen the, where the promise there's going to be a carve out right. for many months, right. but no carve out. And then the managing gets it there and then there's a huge fight. And sometimes that blows the deal up because the managing is like, you promised you'd do a carve out and you're not doing one mm -hmm. now and da 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 da. Yep. Um, I mean, to be honest, in that case, I would, if certainly if I were a buyer, I would just impose it. Yeah. Like, nothing's yeah. happening without this card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what needs to happen. Uh, okay, I think I might have taken us on a digression there. Do you want to talk uh, the state of SaaS or state SMB of SMB SaaS? software? Yeah, okay. sure. My first question is Did the, um, this is a kind of a little digression, but did the downturn in like November, December scare, you know, affect your number? Like what, because, because, I know around like here in San Francisco, like it was like, oh my, every, pretty much everyone's over invested in SaaS and, yeah. and tech. So everyone's portfolio took like a 20% hit. Yep. And like we were looking at buying a house, it was affecting like the housing market. Like what was your read on that, you know, at the time? Yeah, I mean, so it was like about 20% correction in yeah. December. Uh, we hadn't had one like that since 2008. Yeah. Okay, you know what that was like. It, went the other direction in January. Yeah, so it kind I know. of sorted <laughs> itself out. Um, so our index, so we have this thing, the SurePath SMB love, index. Yes. So like 35 publicly traded yeah. companies that serve the SMB market. Um, the index as a result of December was flat for the year. Mm. But on the whole, so we've been tracking that thing for three and a bit years now. So on the whole, it's way above most yeah. major indices. Yeah. And um, didn't it bounce like eleven percent in January? I think that's yeah, it was, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. I wish it was an ETF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, note to self, yeah. turn it into an that's ETF. That's your next good idea. Um, but I would say, and I noticed this in two thousand eight. Like, again, that that was that was just a blip in December versus a sustained yeah. downturn. But what I saw in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, was that recession was a net positive for Shopify and FreshBooks. Yep. I was involved with both companies at the time. And, you know, it was a case of forced entrepreneurship. Yep. So people were downsized and so opened up consulting shops or, hey, I always had this passion to be a baker, so screw it, I'm gonna yeah. be a baker. Yeah. And um, so it was Me bad. Two companies can't raise money anymore. Yeah. You know. yeah, so it was bad for the economy overall, but it actually increased the proportion of people who became entrepreneurs. Yeah. And therefore, was actually good for for small business yep. and companies serving small. Oh, businesses. interesting! I didn't put that together. Yeah, because yeah. that's who they're selling to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So they yeah. had more people in the top of their funnel. Oh, right? interesting. And so I, I think what I've noticed again, it's a function of 
our economy is a small business economy, even though the big companies get all the headlines. Um, And as a result, if you're serving to lots of small customers, who, by the way, are the bulk of the economy, your business is far more resilient to ups and downs. Whereas if you sell to Fortune 500, you know, the swings are going to be bigger. And so what I've just noticed is the highs are maybe not quite as high as in other sectors and the lows are definitely not as low. Yeah. So less volatility and on the whole, yeah. more and up more up and to the right. I always feel like these companies, the companies you service and the companies we service a lot of, and even us as a company, are like these um, quiet powerhouses though, that they get, yeah. it's like the ball gets rolling down the hill. And then yeah. like, cause even like we lost like four clients, I think that went out of business that would have spooked us like three years ago. It would have been kind of scary for us because it probably would have been like, you know, I don't even know, 8% of our client base or something like that now or maybe 5%, whatever the numbers. Now it's like not even a blip on our screen because like the, the machine's working so well. Yeah. Obviously, if there's like a real bad recession, it's going to hurt. And mm-hmm. it hurt us probably disproportionately because we serve startups. But like these companies, yeah, like people are still going to be using FreshBooks to do their invoicing and collections, right? right? And people are still going to be selling online using Shopify and they still need accounting. So they're going to, you know, it, it, yeah. it feels like they're just so ingrained and the cost of switching is pretty high for these companies too. Yeah. So a theme that we've seen in, uh, when we crunched all the data and state of SMB software, like we went through yeah. 5,700 deals or something, crunched them down to 600 and change that were SMB focused. And so there's many, many themes that came out of that. But one of them is, you know, this notion of ERP. So, you know, in enterprise, you have this ERP, it's yep. like your system of record, you run your business yeah. on it. It's probably SAP a, and, and Oracle are probably the two most yeah. famous, you know, yeah. for big, big businesses. Right. And so there's no notion that there is no small business ERP. Mm-hmm. But what you're starting to see more and more is kind of vertical specific platforms that you do, in fact, run your business on end yeah. to end. Yeah. And so there are old examples of that, like MindBody, right? Yeah. So for kind of yoga studios, gyms. Yeah. But we're seeing kind of new examples of that, like Clio for law practices. I just talked to someone at Clio last week. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we're really seeing it in the restaurant industry. So you got like Toast and Upserve in Boston. You got Seven Shifts. You've got a whole bunch of companies, Touch Bistro. So basically almost every part of the experience of running a restaurant is you know, turn, turning into software. Amazing. You know what's funny about that is I told the Clio lady, I was like, I wish what you're doing exists for accounting firms. I know. Because we still can't find, we're actually doing this big systems upgrade. We're you should Salesforce. check out uh, Practice Ignition. Did they change their name to something else? Nope. Okay, I'll check them out. Based in Sydney, Australia. Practice and it's uh, kind of proposal, invoicing, contract management I'll check for it out. accounting yeah. firms. Um, but it's like, it's crazy. I was like, is our vertical not big enough? Like, what's the problem, mm-hmm. you know? But for like, for, for restaurants, it makes, Total sense. Right. Yeah. And Shopify is like the ERP for e-commerce companies. It is. You know? yeah. yeah. And, and, and so a big, the thing that's kind of why this is going to get a long-term secular trend is uh, demographics, right? So, you know, previous generations of small business owners ran their business on pen and paper and yeah. Word and Excel, but the new generation is running their business probably on their smartphone yeah. or at the very least on their computer. And so no, any aspect of their business, they're thinking technology, right? Also, I think the remote workforce is actually a big part of that because one of the reasons we need, uh, like we're literally doing this evaluation right now, if we need better scheduling and utilization, 
because now we don't, we can't, it was never a perfect way to do this, but like looking over and seeing who's busy and who's not. Right. Now we don't really, can't really do that. So now it's like scheduling and budgets and utilization is like incredibly important to us because we're so remote. Sure. And like that, everyone's more comfortable doing hiring that way now. And probably five years from now, it'll be insane. You know, yeah. like in the I really, think it's a huge trend, you know, so again, Taxstar is one of our clients yeah. and they're fully, fully remote. Uh, Buffer used to be one of our clients, yeah. fully remote. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of investors question whether you can build a big business, and I would just point to Envision, which is a hundred million dollar business, hundred percent distributed. I've been listening to this podcast called Yonder, and they interview uh, startups that are uh, remote, and uh, Zapier is totally remote, yeah, and that's, that's right. like an amazing service too. Amazing so, business, yeah. yeah. So, so you're seeing the verticalization of ERP, basically. Yeah, that's right. I it think that's the only sense. way to do it. It makes you total know, sense. At, like enterprise ERP is horizontal it's clunky yeah it's built in every possible use case and therefore the user experience is horrible yeah the only way to do something that you could run your business on that is easy to use is to do it for a vertical yeah time. i totally agree and you're kind of doing that in your business you pick the vertical we pick the vertical yep i always tell people picking uh, we used we used to do all kinds of startups and or all kinds of businesses and then like Vanessa was like, that's it. We're focusing completely on venture capital backed startups. And that's when we just shot up and started growing like crazy. Yeah. And, and you you picked SMB software companies. You know, yep. It makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. Because uh, then, you know, you just build this body you, of work, right? You know you exactly. Just... Yeah. You know exactly who you're targeting. Was there any other like interesting conclusions out of the, the software or the, the 2018 report? Yeah, I mean, one of them we touched on already was just the kind of growing force of private equity. Yeah. Um, we've lived this firsthand. You know, our last two deals at SurePath ended up going to private equity, even though they didn't start out that way. I feel like people that's still, that's people, the main, people don't realize how powerful it is. But yeah. hearing $1.2 trillion of cash. Yeah, current funds. That's not that's, even assets on That's basically that. like Google, Microsoft, is that their market caps together or something like that? <laughs> you know, right. it's like, you know, yeah. that's insane. Uh, so they're a huge force. So that's, that, that's a thing. Uh, payments is an interesting angle, right? So, you know, probably everyone who's listening to this, certainly if you're running a startup, you probably collect payments over Stripe or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. they're very used to that. Yeah. And so if you look at the payments industry, there's kind of lots of pretty meaningful companies, but fundamentally their product is the same. Like, you know, card not present, you know, yeah. collecting payments. Yeah. One platform looks a hell of a lot like the other. They all charge 2.9 plus 35 cents or yep. whatever, right? Yep. Like they're the same. Yeah. So the more enlightened payments players are recognizing that they are their core business is large but undifferentiated and are starting to buy vertical software Interesting. that they can offer to their merchants to differentiate their well, rails. Well, Square is the best at that probably. Absolutely. They're amazing. They're doing an incredible yeah. job. I had a, and you love this, I had a great conversation with Stripe like six months ago. They called us out of the blue. Actually, Ben from Girl Labs introduced us because someone over there is working on reven, SaaS revenue recognition yeah. out of Stripe. And yeah. like, we were going to build it ourselves. And I got on the phone with this guy, and he's just a, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a product manager. And he's like, we know this is the pain point, how big of a pain point. And I was like, probably 40% of our client base, and we we're doing this on Excel spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. And we have the template set up so we can do it very efficiently. But like, if you could do this, it would make our lives so much easier. And he's like, give me a year and I'll, I'll have it ready for you guys. Amazing. You know, but that's like, that's an example of a payments company, Yep. you know, making all the whole entire ecosystem happier. That's right. going to be, that's going to be really big.
Yeah, and so so th- th- that's a big force in the market. We're yeah. seeing lots of M and A, uh, lots of interesting partnerships, just to add more value to the merchants yeah. and stop them from switching to other rails, right? Because otherwise, you're competing on price. We need Shopify to do something with. Uh, maybe you can make a few phone calls. <laughs> Square sh- or the the Stripe Shopify reconciliation is not going too well. Interesting. With some of our clients. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about why don't they do the, their own payments? I don't understand. Well, they do, but through through Stripe. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I mean, two thirds of their revenue is what they call merchant solutions, most of which is payments. Yeah. And they have like lending, a few other things, but yeah. but it's through Stripe. I know. But if you think about the not the talking. use case of the core Shopify customer, it's not recurring SaaS, right? It's just transactional. And yeah, yeah. But they have a SaaS component, right? Don't they, don't you pay a subscription? Then you no, get... but meaning in terms of the value to the like the. Meaning the end customer is not a SaaS yeah. business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a merchant. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I think we covered everything. Awesome. By the way, this, is, this went very long. I hope you're okay. Yeah, I'm totally cool. <laughs> okay. Mark, thank you so much. So where can they find SurePath? And I, one question I didn't ask you was like, when should someone reach out to you, basically? Yeah, great question. So if you think about the things that we do, so set aside buy side, you know, uh, we, we help companies raise growth capital and we help them exit. Uh, growth capital to me, like we have two kinds of clients. One is, you know, a client that's done the standard venture thing. They've done the seed. They've done the A. A great time for us to get involved is after the A. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally, kind of right after. Yeah. Like you have your closing party, recover your hangover, give us a call. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is sort of like twofold. One is like it's not easy to raise any round, but I think it's relatively easier to raise seed and A yeah. because the investment decision is fundamentally a leap of faith. They're still falling in love with you as a founder. Right. Yeah. But if you decide to raise that B, uh, every I will be dotted, every T will be crossed. It will be a very data-driven decision, and yeah. therefore we can add a lot of value to make yeah. sure you're set up for that. And then also going back to this notion of uh, most exits being smaller than most people think, if you decide to raise that B, you've actually decided to forego where most of the exit activity takes yeah. place. So we actually want to be part of that discussion yeah. with you to help you make the right and choice. And you're basically saying you can't, you're not going to sell for like anything less than $200 million or something like that. Yeah, which is super rare. You That's know, something we didn't touch on is another theme in the state of SMB yeah. is, you know, if you think about kind of consumer markets, enterprise markets, there are kind of natural consolidators. Like, yeah. you know, historically IBM, you know, very acquisitive in the enterprise market. Mm-hmm. There is no dominant acquirer in SMB. It's a very long tail. Yeah. And you look at, you know, massive companies like, uh, like Intuit uh, that has a long history as, a, as an acquirer. I mean, its largest acquisition ever is 340 million. Which and like, T-sheets, Yeah, right? T-sheets, yeah. 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 Which is like, wouldn't even move the needle for yeah. today's yeah, venture yeah, yeah. fund. Yeah, right? and T-sheets took one round. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. So, so we want to be part of that conversation, right? And help people figure that out. Yeah. And, and so, and then for exits, you know, again, it just comes back. We want, so we want to have these long-standing relationships, uh, build the trust, track the business, uh, so that when the time is right, you know, we can move quickly. Yeah. So we actually like to get involved or to get to know businesses early, but we wouldn't formally engage until a company was, if, if they're yeah. venture funded, they're post series A, yeah. or, you know, if they've kind of skipped all of that, like a tax jar, yeah. they're just far enough along where we can surface all the options and therefore put them in the driver's seat. I love that. And let the founders make an educated decision. Yeah. Because otherwise inertia will take you a certain way. Right. It may not be the right way for you to go. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Surepath, what? Surepath.com? Surepathcapital.com. Check and get on the mailing list because I get like the email every month. <laughs> it's awesome. 
I always think, why didn't I buy more SMB software companies in my <laughs> stock portfolio? Uh, Mark, thank you so much. Appreciate thank you. It. Appreciate cool. it. Hope you enjoyed that podcast with Mark. He is amazing. It's awesome to have him on the podcast again. Uh, and before we hang up here, our last uh, shout out to Brex, our sponsor for podcasts at Cruise Consulting. Brex is the credit card for startups. They make it easy. There's no personal guarantees. They have great rewards. You can go through the Brex signup flow, type in Cruise, K-R-U-Z-E, and you get a discount. Thanks to our friends at Brex for sponsoring the last five or six podcasts. Appreciate it.